Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. Some people are natural leaders, while others have leadership thrust upon them. As we study the kings of Israel, you'll come face to face with your convictions and be forced to decide if you're going to be a king or a coward as you lead the people around you. The choice is yours. So 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where we're going to be most of the time this morning. So I need you to help me out with a quick survey. We're going to do a quick show of hands. All right, This isn't like uh, one of those tricky like church things where we like trick you into raising your hand and like three counselors come over and like try to get you to sign a card. We're not going to do that. I just, need, I just need some feedback. So I don't know how else to do it other than have you raise your hands. Um, we could do like jump up and down, but some people in our church wouldn't do that. Like Abby wouldn't do that. She wouldn't jump up and down if they gave her a million dollars in this church. So I'm going to do show of hands instead. So I need your help, okay? Now, I know what I'm asking, Sam, okay? So don't, don't like read too much into this. I got a lot of people in our church, they read too much into stuff. Just go with your gut and answer the question I ask, all right? So here's the question. I want you to raise your hand if you think you're a leader. Just raise your hand if you think of yourself as a leader. You can be young, old, Whatever, it doesn't matter. Girl, guy, doesn't matter. Raise your hand if you think you're a leader. Okay, so that's probably about, okay. okay. Put your hands down a second. Now, I want you to raise your hand if you think of yourself or you consider yourself to be a follower. The followers are all too scared to raise their hand. Like, oh, I don't know, is the leader let me, I have to ask the leader if I'm allowed to raise my hand, you know? <laughs> you don't have to ask any leader if you're allowed. Just I'll be the leader for you here. If you're a follower, or you think you're a follower, just go ahead. Mackenzie loved that, by the way. Just go ahead and raise your hands. All right. How many of you are like so lazy and so tired because you stayed up too late last night, you can't even raise your hand to answer? How many of you are like that, right? Okay. Yeah. So like more leaders than followers, but we had a lot of like, you know, I'm so lazy I can't even vote. I'm so lazy. So you should always vote. Sam told me that. You should always vote. So I'm just saying, always cast your vote. Your vote matters. All right? Yes, we can. So, all right. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to challenge you on this idea this morning to kick this series off. The truth is, if you raised your hand, you said, I'm a leader. I'm here today to tell you you're wrong. Uh-oh. Three people just left. Three people just left. Okay. And the five of you that raised your hand and said, I'm a follower, you also are wrong. Uh-oh. Where's this thing going? Now I'm confused. I got smoke coming out of people's ears. What are we talking about today? In God's Word, what I'm going to show you today, hopefully over the course of this series, if you'll come back each week, and you did a good thing about being here today. Some people got churched out last week at Mother's Day, so they didn't come back today. But you guys are all here, so that's good. You're, you're here for the beginning of this. You can come every week and get the whole thing, because it can be like an eight, another eight-week sermon. Is that all right? We could do it all in one week if you want to stick around about four o'clock. Is that? Yeah, no. So just come back. But what I want to challenge you on over the course of this series, especially today as we kick it off, is that in God's word, you are not a leader or a follower. You are both. And the mistake that we make so often is we convince ourselves that I'm a leader and so I never follow. Or I'm a follower, so I never lead. And a leader who never follows is a bad leader. In fact, a leader who never follows is usually a dictator. You with me? 
I've known some dictator leaders in my life. I've worked for some of them. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've had some of them as friends growing up, but for whatever reason, it was always their way or the highway, right? A leader who never follows is a dictator. A follower who never leads is missing out on the impact that God designed them to have on the people around them. And we got people all over our world, and I hate to tell you, all over our church, that are missing out on their calling to lead. And other people in our church that are leading like dictators. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to lead with conviction and courage, but I want you to follow with your whole heart and with humility. And if you can mush those two things, go ahead and turn those cell phones off. They're not that important. They don't want anything from you, whoever that was. But I want you to know that if you'll learn throughout this series how to lead, that's not even a cell phone anymore. That's just like somebody's listening to rap music while I'm preaching. That's all that is. If I see anybody bouncing back there, we're going to shut this thing down. But if you'll learn how to lead with courage and conviction like God says to lead, I guarantee you, you will make a better impact on the people in your life. And if you learn to follow with humility and wholeheartedly like God wants you to, the people you're trying to lead, the people you're trying to impact, the people that surround you, they'll benefit so greatly from it. So I want you to do both of those today. So that's why I tricked you kind of, right? So I tricked you into the wrong answer, so now you can feel all guilty. Because that's what you think you're supposed to do in church, right? Come in and feel all guilty and embarrassed or something. But you don't have to feel like that this morning, right? So let me recap some history, because really this series is a history lesson. And this is my favorite part of the whole Bible. I love Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament. Uh, I even took a specific class just on that in college that I didn't even have to take, just because I like it so much. And I love this part of the Bible. I love the history of God's Word. And I love seeing how differently culture operated, um, you know, 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. I love it. And so it's very interesting to me. It may not be as interesting to you. Hang in there, all right? We're going to teach something else after this series is over, so you'll be okay, right? But I want to give you a little bit of a recap because there's so much to cover today. I can't cover it all. So let me just highlight kind of a recap of the history of what we're talking about. So many people are familiar, even if they've never been in church, are familiar with this, probably the the second most famous story in the whole Bible, right? The most famous story in the whole Bible is undoubtedly the story about Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection. People who don't even go to church, people who don't say they're a Christian, people who don't even believe there is a Jesus, they've heard of Easter, and they've heard of Jesus and crucifixion, resurrection, all that. But probably the second most famous story in the Bible, and probably the story that's referenced the most in the whole Bible, except for Jesus' death and resurrection, is the story of Israel being delivered from slavery in Egypt. Right? Movies have been made about it. Lots of books have been written about it, obviously. And all throughout the Bible, it's taught over and over again. And God uses that one event to always say to people, remember how good I've been to you in the past. That's like his defining moment as a father, a godly father to his people. Anytime they disobey, anytime they get into trouble, anytime they ask him for help, he almost always comes back to, hey, remember how good I was to you way back there in Egypt. 
And it's just talked about over and over again in the Bible. And so the Israelite people, there was no country at this time. They were just a group of Hebrew people that rose up, kept multiplying and multiplying in Egypt under Egyptian rule. Eventually there was a Pharaoh who took over who was evil, treated them harshly and just enslaved them and made them do all kinds of work for them, right? And so they become slaves. And for 400 years, the Hebrew people are slaves. They're not a nation. They do whatever the dictator tells them to do. Well, then God sends Moses. A lot of people have heard of Moses. God sends Moses, says, I want you to go. I want you to get my people out of slavery. So he goes to Pharaoh, says, let these guys go. This God is telling you to let the Hebrew people go. And Pharaoh won't do it. And so then God sends these plagues on Egypt to basically try to twist Pharaoh's arm, right? To convince him it's not a good idea to defy the living God. Do what I'm telling you to do. Eventually, Pharaoh lets those people go. And they walk into the wilderness and God says, I'm sending you to a specific plot of land, a promised land. And that land's gonna become your country. You're going to make a country, a new nation, but they're not there yet. They're just in the wilderness on their way there. And while they're on the way there, Moses is their leader. God decides he's going to give Moses some instructions. Okay. We call it the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. They called it the law, right? But it's really God saying, hey, you've never been a country. You're about to become a country. You need to know how to govern as a country. So I'm going to give you all these laws and rules and guidelines so you know what you can do, what you can't do, what you should do to succeed, and what you shouldn't do so that you'll succeed. And that's basically what the first five books of the Bible are. They're God giving Israel, the Hebrew people, everything they need in order to function correctly as a nation. Okay? And so you get to the last book of that five, Deuteronomy. And in that book, there's this weird set of guidelines that I'm going to share with you in just a second. It doesn't seem to make sense because the guidelines all revolve around picking, choosing a king, and what that king should be like. But they've never had a king. They don't have a king now. They just have Moses leading them. He's a prophet. In other words, he gets messages from God, tells them what God said, and they just do what God tells them to do. In a sense, God has been their king. They don't have a president. They don't have a Congress. They don't have a king. But yet God is going to weave into this book of Deuteronomy some guidelines for what a king should be like. And that doesn't make sense until you read the first verse of what God says in Deuteronomy where he says, hey, at some point in the future, you're going to want a king, just like all the other countries around you. And when that time comes, here's the guidelines. Does that make sense? So God's making a prediction. Now, we don't have time to look at the whole passage. I'd encourage you to read it on your own. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. If you want to go back and read it on your own sometime. But it's these guidelines I'm about to share with you. So he gives the people two sets of guidelines. The first set of guidelines is how they as a nation are supposed to pick a king. Okay, here they are. You ready? The first one will be on the screen, I think. The first one is that the king has got to be Hebrew. 
He's got to be an Israelite, somebody who was born in their country. Now, that's not hard to understand because we have a similar law in our country for being the president, right? You can't be the president of the United States unless you were born an American citizen, right? This is the same kind of idea. Now, the second guideline could really have been the only guideline, and it's the one that matters the most. But the second guideline for choosing a king was this. They have to pick the king that God selects. Oh, you're like, that's not fair. You mean we don't get a vote? You mean we don't get to debate about it? No, God's just going to pick him. They're like, okay, you don't want me to be your king. You'd rather have another king someday. If that's the case, then I get to pick the king. So that was the only two rules for how they were to pick the king. That's easy because God took all the legwork out of it. They don't need any debates. They don't need any like obnoxious TV commercials before the election, right? All they need is God to be like, that guy. You're like, okay, that's our king. That's how they pick a king. Then he gives them a second set of guidelines. The second set of guidelines are the guidelines that the king is supposed to follow once they pick a king. You ready? I'm going to give you those too. Here's the first one. Now just stick with me. Some of these are going to seem weird to us, okay? The first guideline for a king is this. He's not to accumulate a bunch of horses. That seems weird. Like, I'm out. Somebody's like, I'm out. I want to be king. I want a bunch of horses, right? Okay, he's not supposed to accumulate a bunch of horses. Stay with me. We'll come back to it. The second guideline for a king is he's not supposed to go to Egypt to buy or get horses. That seems weird so far. Just, just hang on. Trust me. If you've been here long enough, you should have enough trust in me to hang with me for a second, right? The third guideline for a king is he's not, dispo- not supposed to have multiple wives. Some of you now are like, I'm out too, right? Like, I want, I want a bunch of horses and a bunch of women. That's what you, okay. Stick with me, right? Fourth guideline he gives them. You can look at all these on your own in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The fourth one, he's not supposed to accumulate a bunch of wealth for himself, okay? The fifth one, he's supposed to handwrite a copy of God's law on his own. That's the first five books of the Bible. That's a lot of writing, right? And then the last one, there's six of them. The sixth one, he's supposed to read that copy of God's law every day. All right, now they're all on the screen. Leave them up there for a second. I want to go back and just explain something to you just so, you, so we're on the same page, okay? What is God saying? Is God like anti-horse? Is God like, don't tell the PETA people when I pick a king because I don't want them coming in here and like, you know, griping about how we treat animals? Is God saying I'm about monogamy, not polygamy? Is, that the, is God like anti-money? Is that what these guidelines are about? Stick with me, okay? Here's what he's saying. During this time in history, the amount of horses you had as a nation symbolized or represented how strong your military was, right? They didn't have tanks or jets. They didn't have body armor. What they had was soldiers and horses. And so what he's saying to the king and the first guideline is, don't accumulate so many horses that you start to trust your own military might for your protection and safety. Okay? Here's the second one. He says, don't go to Egypt to buy horses. Now, if you read the passage, you'll see that what he says is, because I've already told you, I don't want you going back to the place you were a slave. No matter what you need, you can go anywhere you want, but I don't want you running back to the place you were a slave for hundreds of years. Stick with me for a second. Does that make sense? 
Make sense to me so far? The third one, I don't want you to multiply wives. Here's what he's saying. In that culture during that time, it was very common for kings to marry women from other countries as part of treaties. So they'd make a treaty with another nation, and the king of the other nation would give one of his daughters in marriage to the king of that nation to solidify or seal the treaty. And God says in this passage, if you read the whole thing on your own, I don't want you doing that because these women that come from these other countries, they might trick you into believing in their God. And I only want you to follow me. You with me? Then he says, I don't want you to accumulate, it says, actually it says, will not, must not accumulate wealth for. But that's a misprint. Is that okay? We can have a mistake? Okay. For yourself, for himself. Don't accumulate a bunch of wealth. For yourself. That one's pretty self explanatory, but what he's really saying is don't treat everybody like dirt and suck up all the wealth for yourself, which we've seen that in our world, right? Dictators who take all the money from their nation and the people are starving to death. I don't want you to do that. Then he says, You got to handwrite a copy of the law. This one's the one that blows my mind the most because I don't know if I would want to do that now, right? And I got like, you know, better writing utensils. I'm not writing like a feather dipped in ink or something. You know what I mean? And I still wouldn't want to do that. That's a lot of writing. But these last two kind of go together. Make a copy of God's law, keep it with you, and read it every day, he says. Because I don't want you to forget. If you read, there's like several reasons why he tells them to do this. But ultimately what he's saying is, I don't want you for, to forget who the real boss is. I don't want you to get so drunk on power as the king that you forget I'm the one who got you there. I'm the one who will get you where you need to go next. Trust me. All of these guidelines revolve around this idea. I don't want you to depend, to depend on yourself. I don't want you to depend on your own cunning, on your own wealth, on your own military might, on your own ability to make treaties and peace. I don't want you to run back to where you were a slave before. I don't want you to forget all the things I've said. No, I want you to every day be trusting me for your safety, for your wisdom, for your security, for your wealth, for your happiness, for everything you need. Trust me. You see, you see that in these guidelines? That's what he's trying to communicate to the king. Remember what I said, they don't have a king yet. So now fast forward 400 more years into the future. 400 years into the future. And Samuel is the prophet in Israel. Now Samuel was also a priest, and he was also a judge. And in fact, he was the last judge of Israel. If you remember our series we did, I don't know, last year, I guess, about all the judges. But the judge and the prophet kind of functioned similarly in some sense. And so it was good that he was both of those things. But he was getting messages from God, delivering them to the people as prophet. And then as judge, he was presiding over them similarly to a judge would do today. But even more so, God sometimes would empower these judges to do supernatural, amazing feats, right? So Samuel's the last one of these judges. And his sons are about to take over his role as a prophet and judge. But his sons are dirtbags. Just call it like it is, okay? They're jerks. And so all the people of Israel are like, we don't want those guys judging us. We don't want them to be the ones ruling on property disputes and disagreements and 
deciding what to do with us. So they go to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and they finally say, 400 years later, we want a king, like all the other countries around us. We want a king. So Samuel goes to God, and he tells God, this is what they've said to me. What, do I, what should I say to them? And God basically says, go back to them and try to talk them out of it. Give them this warning for me. Give them a warning so that they know what they're getting into. I'm going to read you the warning. You ready? This is what Samuel says to the people when they say, we want a king. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is how a king will reign over you. Listen to this description. See if this doesn't sound pretty accurate with what you know to be true about history. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. You get it, right? The king's going to draft your sons into his army, right? That happened a lot. Some will be generals and captains, and some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. Oops, I missed a line. Some will be forced to plow in his fields, harvest his crops. Some will make his weapons and his chariot equipment. Then the king will take your daughters. He'll take them from you and he'll force them to cook for him, bake for him, make perfumes for him. He'll take away the best of your fields. He'll take away your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain. Sounds like taxes, right? That's what the king's going to do. He's going to tax you. He's going to take away a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves, and he'll demand the finest of your cattle and your donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. And then in verse 18, Samuel says to him, And when that day comes, you will beg for relief from the king that you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. I know a lot of people in our country that are begging from relief from some of those very things. Even today, we don't like it if the government comes in and takes our land, do we? We wouldn't like it if they instituted a draft and made us go fight in some war we disagreed with. We wouldn't like it if they showed up at our house and said, Give me your daughters, she's gonna be my slave. I'm going to marry her. We wouldn't like that. We wouldn't like that if he showed up and said, hey, all the wealth you got, give me some more of it. We don't like that now. How many people like it when they raise your taxes? Nobody likes that. Even the people that are for higher taxes don't like it when they raise their own taxes. Do that. Nobody wants them to take more of your money, more of your stuff, more of your daughters, more of your sons, more of your property. Nobody wants that from our government. And we got it pretty good. We don't even have a king, and we don't like that. Imagine if the king could just arbitrarily, and the day's going to come when you're going to beg for relief, he says. But in that day, God's not going to give it to you. Why? Why is God not going to give you any relief? Because he's going to look back at you and say, I just gave you what you asked for. You wanted it. I gave you just what you wanted, right? Listen to their response in the very next verse. Verse 19, they said this, but the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. 
Even so, we still want a king. Now, I don't think they were stupid, okay? I don't think they were stupid. I think they heard all those things that the king was going to do. And just like me, I think they thought, that all stinks. I don't want any of that to happen. That's no good. But they refused to listen and said, we still want a king. Why? Here's why. Listen, it's the same reason we do it today. I think they heard all that stuff and their thought was, the Bible doesn't say this. This is kind of a gut feeling. But I think that Samuel gave them that warning and their thought was, all of that stuff is bad. But it won't happen to me. I mean, yeah, the king's going to want some lands. But who am I? I don't even live in the capital city. He's not going to take my land. I mean, surely the king's going to want some women to come be his wives and his slaves and all that. Probably not my daughter. I don't even have a daughter yet. She's only three. Oh, my daughter's already you know, 25. He's not going to come for her. I mean, all that stuff is bad. And I can see how a king would do all that stuff. But I still want a king because it's probably not going to happen to me. That's exactly what people say today. Here's how it sounds today. You ready? Man, God's telling you not to do that. I, I can promise you from God's word, if you'll follow what he says, if you'll do what he says, your life will be way better. You'll feel more fulfilled. You'll experience more success. If you don't follow what he says, there's going to be some consequences, some disaster maybe. And people think, well, I believe that's true. I believe that there's disaster. If I shoot this needle into my arm, I believe there's some consequences, but, but I could probably deal with it. Right? I mean, you don't find many drug users or many alcoholics. You don't find many people who struggle with those things who would say, oh, yeah, man, it, it does good things for me. There's, it's awesome. That, oh, you don't find many people struggling with drugs and alcohol and you say, do you think it's a good idea for somebody to get hooked on drugs and alcohol? And they go, yeah, it's a great idea. No, they think the same thing. It's got consequences with it. But what they think deep down is, but I, I got this. I can deal. It might affect some other people, but I can manage it. I know there's consequences for disobeying God, but probably not for me. And in that attitude, we reveal the number one problem with a king, and thus the number one problem with us. For 465 years, Israel would go on to have 42 kings, most of whom were evil and treated them harshly, enslaved them and taxed them and took their stuff. And every single one of those kings, you with me? Every single one of those 42 kings, can you put those six guidelines back up on the screen? Every single one of those 42 kings broke every single one of those guidelines. I know what you're saying I should do. I know what you're saying I should do. And I know there's probably consequences if people don't do that. But probably not for me, right? Like, I mean, you, like you really like me, right, God? Like, I'm pretty good. And it reveals this arrogance almost on our part, on the king's part, on the leader's part, that, that shows our worst problem, our greatest attitude. Here it is, you ready? 
the biggest problem with a king is that at some point in their reign, they always start to believe that they're the king. The biggest problem with you as a leader, with me as a leader, is that at some point, we stop following. And we start to think it's all about us. It's all about getting my way, doing my thing, making myself happy. The biggest problem with being a king is that you start to believe you're the king. And you forget that you're a leader, but you're also supposed to be a follower. Or you live only as if you're a follower and you never lead anybody the way God says to lead them. And you miss out on something huge. And there's consequences that come with it. And so Saul is declared to be the very first king of Israel. And that happens in 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you ever want to read it on your own. Saul is declared to be the very first king of Israel. And things start off super good for him. He's everything they ever wanted in a king. He's tall, he's dark, and he's handsome. I don't know if he's dark, but he's from the Middle East, so he's probably dark, right? So he's tall and handsome. The Bible does say that. Has some wealth. Comes from a family of courageous warriors. He's everything they wanted in a king. And he starts off pretty good. Responsible, honoring God, obeying God's commands, doing what God says to do. But it doesn't take very long before things start to change. And they thought this was exactly what they wanted. And I called this teaching time today. I didn't tell you this yet, but I called this teaching time today, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. Because as the old saying goes, you just might get what you want. And they got exactly what they wanted. King to rule over them, just like all the other nations. But before long, it doesn't take long until Saul is faced with the same dilemma that each of us gets faced with as a leader. Can I show it to you? It's in 1 Samuel chapter 13 where I told you to go at the beginning. I just want to read you the story. It's a couple of verses. 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 7. Saul is camped with his soldiers. He's got 3,000 soldiers. He sends 1,000 of them with his son. He stays behind with 2,000 of them. And they're camped across from the Philistines, their arch rival, their nemesis army. And they're about to fight. But they had a ritual, a tradition that God had them put in place. Before you go to war, you ask God for help. That's a good ritual. Soldiers today, a lot of them even do that, right? Before you go into battle, you ask God for help. But God's rule was, I want you to have the prophet do it. I want you to get a priest or a prophet. I want you to have him come in. I want you to have him offer a sacrifice an animal sacrifice. And in that moment, I want you to get together as a nation and pray and ask God for help. And this is where we find Saul and his troops, starting in verse 7. It says, Some of them, some of his troops, crossed over the Jordan River and escaped the land of Gad, of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men were trembling with fear. You with me? They're scared of this other army. Okay? They're scared. It's amazing how fear can make you act like a fool sometimes, isn't it? Okay, so that's just a side note. But So in verse 8, Saul waited there seven days for Samuel. He's waiting for the priest to show up to pray and offer the sacrifice, right? As Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Now Saul's about to give us a lesson in how to react 
as a leader when things don't go your way. Okay? Verse 9. So he demanded, we're going to call this the opposite way to act. Okay? So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering on himself. That doesn't seem like so big a deal, does it? Except for the fact that God told him not to do it that way. He didn't say to do it that way. He said, just wait. Wait for the priest. He'll do it for you. Let's keep reading. The next verse, my favorite verse in this whole paragraph. Verse 10. Just as Saul finished, just as he finished, just as he finished with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. You know how many times help or rescue or freedom from a temptation or, or overcoming of a struggle in your life. You know how many times that that is just around the corner from temptation? And if we would just wait, hold out a little longer, the phone would ring. The door would knock. Somebody would be there being like, hey, man, what's up? You wouldn't be alone, tempted anymore. You wouldn't be, if you just wait a couple minutes, you wouldn't be as angry as you were five minutes ago. It's amazing how often freedom from your struggle is just around the corner from temptation. It's amazing how many times in my life I've been tempted to do something and I've sinned and done it. And as soon as I'm done, just as I finished, help showed up. <laughs> and I was like, man, if I had just waited five more minutes. The Bible says it this way, those that wait on the Lord will get renewed strength. They'll rise up. They'll fly like eagles. How often we miss freedom. We miss God's deliverance just because we won't wait a couple more minutes. Just as Saul finished with the burnt offering, Samuel arrives. Samuel, Saul went out to meet him and welcome him as if nothing's wrong, right? In verse 11, Samuel says, he already knew what he did. Samuel says, what is this that you've done? Saul replied, listen to Saul's response. It is classic us. Classic us. Count how many times he takes the blame for himself as a leader in this verse. Ready? Samuel says, what have you done? Saul replied, I saw the men scatter from me because they were afraid. And you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are over there wanting to fight. What have you done? Samuel said. What have you done? Well, those guys left me. You didn't show up. And those people want to fight me. I didn't ask what they did or what those people did or what I did. I asked, what did you do? How often do we do that? Dig our own hole, fall in it, and then be like, what did you do this for, God? Why'd you get me in this mess? Why didn't those people stick with me? What did you do, Samuel said. And Saul blames everybody else. Verse 12, so I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal. And I haven't even asked the Lord for help. This sounds like a good thing to do. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Listen to what Samuel tells him. How foolish. How foolish. Samuel exclaimed, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. See, in God's kingdom, foolishness isn't connected to stupidity. Foolishness is connected to disobedience. In God's kingdom, you can be stupid and wise at the same time if you just obey, if you just follow. 
A leader doesn't have to be smart in God's kingdom to be wise. He has to be obedient. See the connection there? How foolish you didn't obey the Lord your God. How foolish you didn't follow. You didn't obey. Had you kept it, had you obeyed what God said, God would have established your kingdom forever over Israel. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. I know that was a lot of verses. And hopefully you're able to follow along the story with me because we're not fighting those kind of battles today. We don't have armies under us, but we are leaders. And God has given you a calling. Kids in your life that need you desperately. Co-workers that aren't going to get encouragement from anyone else. Neighbors who need to know what love feels like. And some of us are walking around thinking we're just a follower. I got, no lead. I got nobody to lead. And some of us are walking around like leaders that are dictators. And we just won't obey. We just won't follow. We just won't heed the guidelines. The same guidelines, really. Don't trust your money. Don't trust sex. Don't trust your own strength. Don't trust your own wisdom. Don't run back to the same enslaving, sinful habits that have bogged you down for years. No, instead of all of that, trust and obey me. And if you do, you will impact all the people around you. Your kingdom will be established forever. But if you disobey, I'm going to have to take it away from you. It doesn't end there. It snowballs quickly. It snowballs quickly. Just a couple chapters later, Saul disobeys again. God comes back to him through the prophet Samuel and he says, I already said your kids weren't going to inherit your throne because of your last act of disobedience. Now, now I'm going to have to take it from you early. Because you're disobeying again. A couple chapters later, disobeys again. And God comes back to him and he says, I already said your kids aren't going to get to inherit your kingdom. I already said I'm going to have to take it from you too early. Now you're disobeying again. Now I'm going to have to take your life. Sounds like a cruel God, right? But how many times does God have to bump us over the head before we'll follow his guidelines? Before we'll lead like he's calling us to lead. How many times Saul went on to get grumpy, angry, started to distrust everyone around him, started to hate the people that God placed in his life that he was supposed to be leading? How many leaders are walking around like that, hating the very people they're supposed to lead, distrustful of everyone else in their life, thinking everyone else is out to get them, it's because it never stays at one act of disobedience. I've had this talk with so many people throughout the life of our church already. If you think you can go out and just defiantly disobey God, and that'll be the last of it, you're wrong. How foolish. It never stops at that. Because when you disobey one time, the next time is just a little bit easier. And it snowballs quickly. Before all of a sudden, like Saul... He's out doing stuff he would have never dreamed of doing 10 years earlier. He's going to witches and asking them to conjure up the dead and ghosts to talk to him. Crazy kind of stuff. 
He would have never done that when he first became king. But one small act of disobedience snowballed into a life of defiance. How different is that for me? Not very different at all. So it brings me to the the one question I want to ask you today. Just one. And I want you to be honest and answer it for yourself. It's the question Saul had to answer when Samuel didn't show up in time. When it didn't look like things were going the way he expected them to go. When he needed answers and it felt like he was getting silence. It's the same question. I want to ask it to you today. It'll be on the screen for you. What will you do when your dreams are delayed by God's directions? God says, wait. You say, I won't wait. God says, go. You say, I won't go. God says, obey. You say, I don't want to. What you do? Man, I've had that conversation with so many people. Listen, it's not about following a bunch of rules. It's just about recognizing that possibly God might know better than you. Right? Is it possible that no matter how great of a leader you think you are, that God might just be a little wiser than us? That he might just know a little bit more about what's coming down the road and thus be a little bit more trustworthy than we are? to make guidelines and decisions for our lives. What if we follow those same guidelines? Can you put those back up on the screen one more time? What if we follow those same guidelines? We didn't trust in our own strength for security. If we didn't trust in the places we've run to, our habits, enslaving secrets anymore to feel good about ourselves. What if we didn't trust in our own money? And worry so much about building wealth for ourselves. What if we didn't have to have every man or woman that walked by us that looked good? What if we read God's word every day? What if we wrote and read it on our hearts? What would our life be like? What kind of a leader will we become? What kind of a difference would it make in our classmates, in our coworkers, in our children? What kind of a difference would it make in their lives? If my kids woke up every morning, saw me reading God's word, saw me being faithful to their mom, what kind of a difference in their life would it be if they saw me not put my career and my wealth above them? What kind of a difference in their life would it make if they saw me confront habits in my life and overcome them by the grace of God? What kind of a difference in their life would it make if they saw me trust God for everything instead of trusting myself? What kind of a difference would it make in the life of your neighbors or your coworkers or your family members? Ah, they won't follow me. How do you know unless you lead like God says to lead? The problem with a king is they start to believe they're the king. And that everything's about them. And so everything they do becomes about building their own kingdom. But every step you take to build your kingdom blinds you from God's kingdom. There's people walking out, walking all over the place, even in our church, that are so blinded from what God wants to do in their life because everything they are revolves around building their kingdom, getting more money, getting more women, getting more security going back to the same old heaven. Everything in their life is about making themselves happy, building their own kingdom, finding their own way in life, instead of following the guidelines. So I want to leave you with one story from my childhood, if I can. Middle school basketball. Kenny's kids aren't here. Kenny's boys aren't here. They'd like this because they like basketball. But 
middle school basketball, I'll never forget, there was this guy on our team. He was like the best on the team at taking a charge, okay? If you don't know what a charge is, in basketball, there's this rule that if you are in a spot first and you hold your ground and don't move, and the other guy on the other team bowls you over, it's a foul on him. It's called a charge, right? There was this guy on our team, and he was the best at taking charges. And I'm telling you, every game you could bank on him getting like a couple charges for our team, right? I mean, there'd be somebody coming down the court like full speed, and he'd just be like, boom. And they would just knock him <laughs> flat to the floor every time. And I used to be like, man, I can't do that. I'm going for the steal or the block because I don't want anybody running me over. And I would just like, so I'd just get out of the way a lot, you know what I mean? Or I'd run with them or I'd try to jump and block their shot or something like that. And I'll never forget one of the coaches on our team pulls us all aside and he says, hey, man, you see how this guy's taking charges? The guy was good at it. You see us taking charges? I want you guys to be able to do that. And I want to teach you something. This is what he taught us, ready? It's kind of corny, but it's middle school basketball. It's not like rocket science, right? And so he says, look, when that guy's coming down the court, when he's driving the lane, you got two choices. You can either vacate, you can either vacate the space. I didn't know what vacate meant. He had to tell, he had to tell us, you know, middle school. I'm not saying if you're in middle school, you're dumb. <laughs> so he said, you can either vacate or you can get vicious. I was like, what's he talking about, right? This is what he's talking about, right? So that guy's coming down the lane. You can either jump out of the way, that's vacate, or you can stand there and just grit your teeth and be like, hit me, dude. Take it on, take it on viciously, Right? He's like, I promise you one thing. The pain that you feel when he knocks you over and you get vicious is less than the pain that you'll feel if you cost us the game by vacating. That's the principle right here. Let me tell you something. Sometimes I wake up and it feels like it's going to hurt to open my Bible and read it because I'm tired, right? Or I'm busy. Sometimes it feels like it would be better off just to not do family devotions with our kids because we're running late. Sometimes it feels like I would love, I would just love to click on that website. Sometimes it feels like I just like to go off and be my, by myself. I love all you guys, but sometimes it feels like I'd rather not come here on Sunday morning. Just, just keeping it real, right? But you gotta get vicious. And you got to be like, I'm going to take the pain because I want to win the game. I'm going to take the pain because I want to lead well. I want to win. I, I don't want to leave the safety of my kids to my own strength or to some teacher and sidekicks, although I like all you guys. I'm leaving the safety of my kids to God. And so I'm going to follow his guidelines. I'm not going to leave my soul, my success, my happiness, my contentment in life, I'm not gonna leave it and vacate my duties. I'm gonna get vicious and take it no matter how much it hurts. No matter how much it hurts, I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna follow the guidelines. I'm gonna stand in the fray and take the charge because I wanna win. I wanna look back someday. I want, when you come to my funeral, I want you to talk about what I invested in my kids and how I gave it my all for you guys. 
I want you to talk about how I loved my wife even when I was tired, even when she treated me like dirt. I want you to talk about, when I die, I want you to talk about how I stood in the lane and took the charge, even though I knew it was gonna hurt because I wasn't gonna be content to be a leader, to be a king that ran out of the way when it was time to lead. I'm gonna stand there and take the charge because I wanna be a leader. I wanna be a king, not a coward. You with me? You with me? What is it today that God is saying to you, this is your people, this is your group, this is your family member. I am calling you to lead those people, to be the example, to step up even when it hurts and get vicious and take the blow. And in the end, I'll protect you. In the end, I'll be your wealth. In the end, I'll be your security. In the end, I'll be the real leader. You're leading them, but don't stop following me. Don't be a coward. Stand in the lane and be a king.